Oh, we're on the record. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of HC A Third Culture Kid, where I, as a third culture kid, share my thoughts, experiences, and conversations. A third culture kid is someone that grew up in a country that's different from the one that their parents were raising, and that's me because I grew up in Brazil most of my life, grew up with Korean parents, and also went to an American school all at once during my childhood. Wow, that's probably the smoothest I did that. Uh, welcome to my podcast. Today's podcast is a monologue, and I was debating on what kind of monologue to do, uh, whether it was going to be just relaying some of the lessons that I learned uh, with each grade, like first grade, second grade, third grade, and some like the most prominent learnings that are the most memorable for me, or just some random things I learned throughout the week and just share it with you guys. Maybe more than sharing it with you guys, maybe it's just more to keep a record for myself too. It's like a journal kind of thing for me too, which is probably good for not only retention, but I imagine mental health as, as well. Yeah, I was debating between, between the two and I couldn't quite decide. So, you know what, I'll just do a mix of it. So to recap my week, and it is Christmas, but I, I, I don't know if I enjoy Christmas as much for like what it stands for, then it's just giving me a break and I can take time away from work and it allows me to rest up. And, you know, that's what I'm kind of grateful for and looking forward to with Christmas, but not really what it stands for. Like the birth, the Christmas is like the birthday of Jesus Christ. And I don't, I'm not celebrating that. I'm also not celebrating and I'm not really excited about giving gifts to other people, spending hundreds of dollars on gifts when I think we should be celebrating each other's company. I guess getting gifts for others is like a manner of celebrating the people in your life, but you're spending so much money on it too. And then you're just feeding a whole slew of businesses that's profited off of these holidays. It's so economically characterized more than I feel people characterized. Yeah, it's, I don't feel like the holidays, Christmas with just all the dilution it has from all these different influences, it's not really holidays that, that's like meant for the people. And this is a little awkward, honestly, looking at the camera and recording a podcast as well. But we will make do. We will make do. And it's a good learning experience for me, I guess. And I don't, I don't know if I'm going to always look at the camera, you know? It's a little... I just, I am not very natural with it. Yeah, and I feel like it's forced too. So I'm just going to let myself kind of roam around for you. Let's see. Let's see how well that works. So yeah, Christmas. I am, yeah, I look forward to it because of kind of the free time it affords me. What else do I look forward to? Yeah, I don't really, yeah. It's just, just to say that I'm celebrating Christmas and, and Merry Christmas to other folks. It doesn't, it's not something that I truly stand by. And when I, when I say that, it wouldn't be something I'd be saying super authentically. So maybe happy holidays. I think I can stand by that. Anyway, why do I? Oh, yeah. So just giving some background, you know, it's, it's the holidays around Christmas. And I'm just taking some time off, relaxing, played some golf, trying to do some reading. But leading before before Christmas arrives, there's like Thanksgiving. There's already a few days that I have to rest and just do some things that I want to do, maybe. 
So there's already been a, um, some days that afforded me that time. And I, during the breaks, Christmas included, I, mean, I, I think I've been just, I've just been exploring some sort of some, a different range of mental health tools and kits. And, uh, you know, I, I practice meditation. I also have seen a therapist in general. Uh, what else, what else have I done? Yeah, and I've tried different kinds of therapy as well, too. And, you know, I'm, I'm not going to share too much about what I do in therapy. But I did want to share that I'm in therapy. I don't think it's like therapy has, still has a taboo. There's a lot of spokesmen for it, and I, but I still think it has quite a taboo. So I, I, I want to say the word and share my experience a little bit on therapy, I guess as much as I can without sharing too much, because I, you know, I, I want to respect even my own privacy on this as well. But I want to share that experience because I, I feel like it's still very misunderstood. I feel like it's something that, especially, I, I guess there are institutions around it that reinforce a concept that therapy is something that is given to people that are ill, that have a handicap or whatnot too, because it's covered by insurance. So I guess it classifies as a health benefit. But I, I don't know if it's actually if I should talk about that this podcast episode, maybe in a more private setting. So uh, let me just share a few thoughts about meditation first. Maybe for a different podcast episode, I'll talk about therapy and mental health. But for meditation, like one of the things that I learned, and I'm going to use this app called Headspace, probably a pretty popular app that many people know about. But I use this app called Headspace. And one of the things that really struck a chord with me in Headspace when I was doing one of my sessions was that thoughts fuel emotions. So if you cut off attention to thoughts that fuel these unpleasant emotions, then you reduce those emotions because thoughts are the fuel to the emotions. This was kind of a revelation for me because when I meditated, I would just, you know, note something, you know, meditation is, for me, a session would consist of like sitting down, uh, being aware of my body, doing a body scan, and then focusing on my breathing. And then when uh, a thought that is different from my breathing comes up in my mind, I would label it and then come back to my breathing. And I just resort to this uh, sort of practice, pretty repetitive, but it required my attention and some focus and discipline. And doing this, I think I I, I treated that exercise as like, I just have to focus on my breathing. So like I have to turn my attention to my breathing and then things will get better. If I focus my attention to my breathing and be able to, to be present with my body, then things will get better. But then going back to the lesson and the revelation I shared with you, it wasn't just that. It wasn't it's not just focusing on the breathing that, that helps your mental health and that helps you get better. No, it's the, 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 one of the purposes and the, the reasons for doing and focusing on your breath is to take away the fuel to the emotions that cause you pain or discomfort because thoughts cause attention is the fuel to the thoughts, which is then the fuel for these unpleasant emotions. So by focusing on something else, like your breathing, taking the attention away from the very thoughts that cause that discomfort, because without thoughts, the emotions, the unpleasant emotions, the, the emotions that cause you discomfort cannot hold that much sway to you. 
So I think a common theme before this and in many meditation sessions that arise and is conveyed to me in these sessions is that you have to have this like relationship with these thoughts in general of just neutral, kind of like a neutral relationship with these thoughts. Like you're able to just say, hey, oh, I see you. I see this. This is a thought. Just go back to your breathing. Just let that thought be. Don't engage with it. Don't resist as much, but just notice it. Don't resist it. Don't push so much against it. And just note it. Just be aware of its existence and then go back to your breathing. So that to me was just a very, uh, like a, yes, it's not engaging, but it's a very, it's a very separatist way of thinking about how my mental state was connected to those thoughts so much. But now that revelation of taking the attention away from the thoughts that causes comfort gave me a more causal connection between why it's important to focus on my breathing, why I guess it's separate from this, like having this relationship that's like not engaging with the thoughts. So I guess this revelation more explained why it's important to focus on my breathing and then having this non-engaging relationship with those thoughts um, allows me to focus on something else perhaps, which then cuts off somewhat. And, you know, as I'm saying, it's a little contradictory. So one, one side meditation says that I should not engage with the thoughts that cause discomfort. But then one of the lines that resonated with me in Headspace was that you don't want to give attention to the thoughts that cause discomfort. But even having a non-engaging relationship implies that you have a relationship. So you do give some attention in a non-engaging relationship, at least, to those thoughts. But the revelation I had was you just want to remove the tension to those thoughts that cause discomfort or, uh, or pain. So you don't want to give it. So the less tension you give it to it, the better. But maybe the, the idea that you should have a non-engaging relationship with those thoughts is just an admission that, you know, that's impossible to do. So you should curb your attention to those thoughts to an extent. So maybe that's the idea. Maybe that's how that's how it all connects to, uh, to, to uh, connects together and reconciles with each other. Of this, yes, there's a minimum level of tension you give, but it's not engaging. Versus, don't give your thoughts that give you discomfort any attention, because those are somewhat contradictory. But maybe the middle point between not giving any thoughts and giving many like your full attention to those thoughts is that like okay, there's like a minimum level acceptable threshold that you try to strive for and giving attention to those thoughts. And that's like a just non-engaging level of attention of just knowing and labeling those thoughts. So maybe that's what it is. But going back to the revelation, there was that revelation of the purpose of focusing on your breathing is to then take away that attention to those thoughts that fuel those emotions. Because for example, let's take anger, for example, Let's say you're angry about something. You're angry because somebody cuts you in front of, while you're driving, or you're angry because the line is so long while you're trying to get in and out and you're just taking so long. So you, your thoughts are like, oh man, why is this taking so long? Uh, I have an appointment that I have to get to. Man, this, this is gonna, this is, somebody's gonna be really pissed and I'm gonna be pissed because somebody's gonna be really pissed or the situation is just really shitty. So those are the thoughts that you have. But the more attention you give those thoughts, of course, you can get angrier. But without those thoughts, there's no way you can get angry without thinking that, oh, yeah, I'm going to be late for something and that's going to be bad up for me and that's going to be a terrible situation for me. 
without those very thoughts, you can't be angry. Remove those thoughts and just the idea of being angry then is just non-existent. Like how can you be angry then without those thoughts? So that's kind of an example. Maybe it made sense, maybe it didn't. But that was kind of a revelation for me that I had this week that I wanted to share. Thoughts, fuel, emotion, and attention fuels thoughts. Remove attention to those thoughts, then you remove the fuel to those emotions and those emotions subside and get weaker. So yeah, that's, that's something valuable that I learned that I thought I could share. What else happened during this week? That was important. I mean, I'm reading this book called Thinking Fast and Slow. And I'm in a team that has to like work-wise that I have to make, we have to make really fast decisions to have this crazy level of impact kind of at the company. And reading this book, there's a lot of things that you learn, but a recurring theme also that is, is, is almost inseparable from the lessons that we learned because the lessons are don't make these judgment mistakes. These are how you how you think through things and these are how you make good decisions somewhat and you don't think too fast and these are the kind of the, the logic traps and judgment traps that we make too and implicit in that is that recurringly and repetitively they show examples in showing the value of these is not making these judgment traps they show examples of people making these judgment traps so that's that's something that that i learned um and that kind of resonated with me especially in being a team that we have to make really quick decisions so I, it just it just kind of scared me and made me really alert to how prone we can be to making bad decisions really quickly. And it's just inbuilt in us, like it's inherent and innate in us. And it's the way we think too. Like this book has this, uh, this dichotomy and this framework that they talk about in explaining how we think and make judgments. It's, it's called system one and system two. And very briefly, system one is like, the side of you that just makes judgments really fast. It's just, it has, it's just a fast thinker for you and just makes judgments really fast. It's a, it's a side in your, your mental paradigm that will jump to stereotypes, for example. The system two is the one that will take the time to try to solve problems. Yeah. Come on in. I will pause for a little bit. There's like very little space. All right, carrying on. Where was I? Something about meditation. Oh, no, 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 no. I was talking about operations, kind of making decisions really fast in the environment. Yeah. We're just very prone to making decisions in a very not so great manner. And the book just, the book's intention, I think, is to help us not make these decision traps, but in trying to convince the, in the just convey the importance of not making these 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 decision traps, whether it's like stereotyping, whether it's trying to make predictions, whether it's uh, trying to, oh God, what was it? I don't know what it's called, but one of the common phrases is what you see is all that you see, something like that. Basically, like you make decisions based on what you see and not something that information that's more uh, that's that's beyond the surface of what you see probably butchered that but yeah and explaining and the importance of these decision traps they share examples of several examples several examples and citing statistical studies and one of science psychological studies where people have repeatedly made poor decisions so 
that's just scary, especially when there's so when, when in my team where you have to make decisions really quickly, the likelihood of making bad decisions without being aware of these decision traps then just becomes problematically high. So I value the book for the ability and its education and just making me a better teammate within my team and a more effective decision maker. Like one of the things I think that was crazy was I, I, I'm citing this study kind of off of memory, so don't quote me on this, but there was two questions and people were asked which of these two, these questions were uh, cited two states of affairs. And the question was to many people, which of these two states of affairs is more likely? One was a bank, something like a bank teller that had a PhD, something like that. And then the second state of affair was a feminist bank teller that had a PhD. So the second one had just more characteristics than the first one, um, less. And people were asked, which of the state of affairs is more likelier to be the case? And most people, more people said the second state of affairs. And that's wrong very clearly. Because, and some people who might know conditional probabilities might have already figured that out. Because in the second state of affairs where a feminist bank teller who had a PhD, it's basically the first one with one more condition. So the first one was a bank teller who has a PhD. Second one was a, a feminist bank teller was a PhD. So there's three characteristics, three kind of conditions in the second one. And the first one, there was only two conditions, bank teller, PhD. Second one, feminist, bank teller, PhD. By definition, having another condition occur in the state of affairs makes it less likely. You're adding another event that needs to happen. So by just by definition, and just almost by arithmetic as well too, that second state of affairs is just less likely. But yet people, most of them on average, will think the second state of affairs is more likely. And that is scary because that is wrong. And that's just ignoring just conditional probabilities. And the reason they, if I'm summarizing the book and understanding the book correctly, the reason people make that this mistake in thinking the second state of affairs is more likely is because they it's, it's um the picture of it just seems more likely like oh yeah you know i can see how like a feminist bank teller might also have a phd because for, for some reason that the paradigm just seems more likely there's a visual the paradigm and example just seems more likely i think and that's the impetus of the, the decision making process that's a decision making process and then lead someone to to then lean towards saying the second state of affairs is more likely. And that's scary. That is scary because that's inaccurate and that's just faulty decision-making. And that's just one example. There's just several kinds of decision mistakes that and thinking mistakes, that judgment mistakes that this book cites. And generally there, I think throughout this whole book that I've read so far, I've read about like 34% of the book. Um, the book ties it down to system one, overpowering system two and his dynamic between system one and system two uh, 
which explains a lot of the decision mistakes we make. And if I didn't explain this fully, I don't know when I paused recording because um, somebody came into the room, but uh, uh, system one again is like the one, the, the, the side of your mental decision-making apparatus that will make decisions quickly kind of will like, draw from your memory because associated associated memory to make quick decisions for example um now what am i what am i gonna think maybe you just had experience with barking being bad and if you hear it barking you're gonna like think oh i gotta run it's like system one this is like quick thinking like just automatic thinking and then system two is just more deliberate thinking like having the more deliberateness in your thinking like logically deducing things um so that's system two so you divide your mental thinking decision apparatus in those two systems and attribute a lot of the decision mistakes that they cite in the book to the dynamic of the system between system one and system two we're generally it's like system one is just many of the mistakes that are made it's just because it's because system one prevailed over system two and i guess implicit in what i'm saying there is a system one and system two are often in conflict a decision that you make in system one is not necessarily a decision that you're going to make in system two. And take this, take this one for example. I'll take this the, the second, the two states of affairs that I convey to you, for example. System one dominated because you just from your associated memory and just uh just like what you thought was right. That was like system one saying, like, oh yeah, famous bank teller who's a fem uh, who's a PhD. You know, that just that's just seems to fit more right. And if you just visualize it, that feels more right. Like you're just able to visualize it more, I guess, too. And because you're able to visualize it more, oh, I think that's what the book was saying, because you're able to visualize it more because it's more distinct of a picture or distinguishing of a picture, then it just feels more realistic to you. So, so system system one, then that's kind of like system one doing the thinking. And that's the rationale, which is a faulty rationale for assessing that the second state of affairs is more likely. And that's system one doing the talking. If you exercise system two, then you might think of like conditional probabilities. Like by definition, and so uh, a quick example of conditional probabilities. Let's say, um, given that you roll, let's say, with the, let's use an example of a dice. Given that you rolled a six, what are your chances of rolling a three? So that's kind of a uh, a question that captures conditional probabilities. Given that one state of affairs already happened, what is your chances of rolling a three? Now those are independent probabilities because you rolling a six doesn't have any impact on what the next roll you make. Like in, as a whole, when you look at the whole sequence of events, not the not the single event itself, but the whole sequence of events, the likelihood of rolling a six and three is less. I guess yeah, is that conditional probabilities or independent probabilities? The book did, they said something about Bayesian statistics. Now I'm not gonna get into it because I'm not an expert, but just intuitively thinking, like you rolling a six and a three together. Is much like that's like less likely than you just rolling a three by itself. Rolling a three, the chances, assuming of a six-sided die, is one out of six. You rolling a, a six and a three at the same time is one out of six times one out of six. So that's one out of thirty-six. One out of thirty-six is less than one out of six. So the parallel between the two states of affairs is um, that rolling a three and a six is like saying two conditions are going to occur at the same time versus one condition that's going to occur at the same time. My arithmetic stock because there's like two conditions in the first state of affairs, but three conditions in the second state of affairs. But but you get the point. Adding more conditions to a state of affairs and a more 
adding another event that needs to occur for the state of affairs to be complete, in this case, bank teller, feminist, PhD, just makes the whole state of affairs less likely. You're adding another event that needs to occur. Sometimes I repeat myself because I don't know if I'm like getting the full point across, but I think it, I got, I, I'm going to stop at this point. I think I got the point across. So yeah, that's one decision trap somebody makes. And it's just, it's just, it's baffling because it's so obvious maybe, but I can also see myself making that mistake. And many people will make that mistake too. And in the examples that they give throughout this book, they're not just talking about just like the average person. They're talking about also like trained statisticians that regularly make mistakes in questions and judgments that involve the use of statistics, that if you use statistics, that you'd arrive at the right decisions. So that's what's alarming too. And that, I think that just indicates just the, the prevalence and just the strength of this mental thinking of apparatus that's just innate in us, maybe this, maybe it's attributed to system one, that it just prevails over trained education. It's just that powerful. It's, it's, it's amazing how common you see this nature versus nurture apparatus appear in like many different situations in the world. And, and I feel like this is one such example. What I say like, oh, how this like mental apparatus that we have that's inborn in us overpowers education, nurture, that we've also learned to try to protect ourselves and to nurture ourselves to make better decisions. But yet we have this inborn in our brain, just mental decision-making apparatus and process that overpowers sometimes uh, this availability that we have in statistics to be able to make these better decisions. So another example of nature versus nurture in this time where nature wins out and when in these, some many of the examples when nature does win out, poor decisions may be made and nature in that sense may not be good. Nature is not always good. Therefore, if you, if you stretch kind of the scope of nature and I, this, in my definition, the scope of nature includes how the brain naturally works and making decisions and jump. Oh, I need some water. Yeah, so those are some of the things I learned. Meditation, that was fascinating. Kind of like this revelation of like taking away the tension from the thoughts to fuel the very emotion that causes discomfort is one of the very reasons that why you should focus on something else, like your breath. And then two, it's astounding, it's scary, especially in, I'm sure, I'm sure I'm not the only team. I'm sure several companies have teams that make decisions very fast and have to make really profound, impactful decisions in like, minute or 30 minutes or an hour maybe too these decisions can have implications and just last for a whole half or for a whole year two years three years oh come on in oh, i was getting into it all right resuming and two what was that what was i gonna say two it's just astounding how often we make poor judgment decisions and especially even like people who have received the very education that would be able to help them in making the right decisions. And it's even more astounding that we make these decision traps, knowing that there's so many teams, organizations around the world that have to make decisions really fast. That's, that's going to have impact for like two years, three years, for many years. That's, that's scary. And so I think that's why it's really, that, the, the, the book really struck accord with me or really drew me in because I was like, wow, it's going to be really important for me to be kind of aware of these so that I, I just knowing, just seeing this, the whole 
just the frequency and the diversity of how many decision traps there are. Like, there's no way I think that I'm super hopeful. Like, 100, I'm 100% hopeful that I'm never going to make one of these decision traps. And it's probably unrealistic. And but, but that's what that's what drew me into this book too, and really kind of almost demanded my attention to it because if I have to make decisions really quick too, I want to make good decisions. And this book is telling me there's a way to do it. And it's a, it's a problem that we probably want to fix just with just the frequency of how, how and the diversity of decision traps. Actually, yeah, not the, just the frequency, but the diversity of how many decision traps there are and how frequently these each of these decision traps, like each of the different types of decision traps can be made. So that's astounding and scary at the same time. That's why this book is important, I think. Thinking fast and slow. If anything, at the least, it just communicates to you that Making decisions fast without too much thought sometimes can be very dangerous. It can be dangerous, especially for people in positions of power. So also makes you think maybe really we really do need machines in this world to make decisions for us. Because I mean, what's one one lesson that the book relayed was like we're just lazy sometimes to make the right decisions. System two, using your deliberate thinking takes effort. And because it takes effort, some we won't do it. There's another cost and resource. Like effort is a resource that must be expended to make the right decisions. And because it requires effort, we might we may be lazy. And lazy probably we're just we're really extending the definition of the word. Lazy is basically in that thing in this context, just not the exercise is the non-exercise of effort required to be able to make that right decision and conclude. So maybe we do need machines. <laughs> Because machines are not going to think twice about exercising the effort. They're they're programmed to exercise the effort. That CPU and like these bytes and you know they're they're that's that's no problem. That's like they're very that's that's we have time, you know, as we there's as as our like our our, our clock and engine for like moving forward. And they have, you know, they gotta you know run their CPU, the machines. I probably butchered my explanation my like even the layman's explanation of how computers and machines how i made my point i think that made the point was kind of clear yep on to basketball you know i was watching looking at some stats as uh i paused the recording and just you know browse through my phone but oh my god the lakers los angeles lakers in this season in 2021 are just oh bad they lost to the brooklyn nets which i granted they are the top one um seed in the east so the nba is divided into two conference the eastern conference and the western conference which roughly represents like the eastern side of the nation of the united states and the western side of the united states respectively assuming i said east and west but brooklyn is the top team in the east and by top i mean the team with the most wins in the conference and the least losses generally most wins and the least losses and those two probably like are like the same are the different side of the same coin because if it's the least losses and assuming that you play this an equivalent number of games with all the teams would be um equivalent number of games as each team then you know you're the less number of losses you have and that's going to translate into greater wins so two sides of the same coin but anyway brooklyn's like the top seed in the east and then the lakers are like number six but why I'd still be surprised that the Lakers are still doing are doing pretty bad right now and that, that they've lost to the Brooklyn Nets because their cast 
of team like members is not that bad. Like they have LeBron James, who is arguably the best player of the generation right now. Maybe he's like declining a little, but still he's like averaging crazy stats, like 27 points per game, six point some assists, six point some rebounds. So like we've been rounded up to like seven assists, seven rebounds. So these are like stellar numbers that you're probably not going to find and maybe one or two other players that might have those stats. None, I think. Actually, none probably have like 27.7 assists. Does Kevin Durant? Possibly. But Kevin Durant doesn't have like seven assists. So still elite player, maybe top five NBA player in the league, if not the best. And then Russell Westbrook was once the MVP in the league. MVP stands for most valuable player. And then just they just have a, a cast of like stars too, and they should be doing better too. Anthony Davis is injured, so that, that hurts their case too. But Brooklyn Nets, when they played the Brooklyn Nets, the Brooklyn Nets didn't have the best, their best player, Kevin Durant. And he's me, might, might be in discussion for the best player in the league right now too. Especially because, and he's proving his case too, because the Brooklyn Nets are like the top seeded team right now in the East, and they still don't have one of like their key players in Kyrie Irving because he doesn't, he's refusing to take a vaccine. That might be discussed for another topic. But yeah, the Brooklyn Nets, who doesn't have their top star, the Lakers, who arguably have their top star, lost the Brooklyn Nets. And they're like, what are they now? They're probably like seventh in the West now. They're eighth in the West now. It defies intuitive explanation because they have, uh, maybe, I don't know, Russell Westbrook just doesn't seem to fit with the Lakers too much. He's like so ball dominant. That's important because LeBron James is also ball dominant. What ball dominant means is that you have to have the ball in your hands to be effective. If both players need the ball in their hands to be effective, then one, the team's just not going to move the ball around that much. Ball movement is important for many reasons, but intuitively you can think the ball moves faster than the player. So if you don't have speed in the movement of the ball, the very thing that needs to go into the basket to be able to score points so that your team can rack up points and win, the very thing that needs to move fast to be able to go into the basket to help your team win doesn't move fast because you have people who are so ball dominant and there's not going to be as much ball movement. I just came up with that. But intuitively, I think that kind of makes sense. That's not going to be good for your team. And Russell Westbrook is very ball dominant. And between the two, LeBron James and Russell Westbrook, LeBron James is the better ball-dominant player. So we got Russell Westbrook, LeBron James, and then you got, like, Isaiah. They picked up Isaiah Thomas, who was a great player for, like, one season, but he's also ball-dominant. Um, they don't have a lot of shooters. They don't have a lot of players who play off the ball that much, too. And off the ball generally means, like, you're probably going to have to cut and move um, without the ball to be able to create opportunities and spaces and positions for you to be in an effective space place to either make a play um, or to score the ball. Make a play can mean like, you know, you create some space so that you pass to another player who can then finish the play, a.k.a. score the basket. Um, or even get a foul. Because if you get a foul, then you go to the free throw line, then you get to shoot free throws that then generates points. So that's still making a play, a productive play. So, yeah, just the Lakers. Let me also, Russell Westbrook is just super inconsistent. He makes, he's known for making very bad decisions. He cannot be trusted too much with making good decisions. And it shows because he, has, he usually has a lot of turnovers. Turnovers are when you lose possession of the ball and you flip the possession of the ball to another team. So generally, this is because you've made a poor decision with the ball by making an errant pass, mistimed pass, or pass to another opponent, or because you dribble into, enemy territory where he shouldn't uh 
yeah, so turnover is kind of an indicator for like bad decision making. And Russell Westbrook generally has like high turnovers. Turnovers by itself is not like an indicator that you know you have you have bad there's bad decisions that you made because generally um, sometimes point guards who have the ball the most by definition for the ball the most you have the most chances of getting the ball stolen and losing possession of the ball. So people who are ball dominant are also gonna just naturally have more turnovers. But for Russell Westbrook, he just has so many bad decisions. And his stat line for the evening where he lost, four out of 20 in terms of shooting. He shot four of 20. He took 20 shots, which is pretty high, and made only four of their shots. He's so inconsistent. And just having another ball-dominant player that's so inconsistent, giving that person the ball on a nightly basis, even though they produce inconsistent results with Poor decision making, especially during the stretch, like down the stretch, like the final minutes of the game too, which can, which are critical maybe to secure one if you have a close game. It's just not worth it. Also, Westbrook. Let me see. Let's see his turnover rate. Oh, his field goal percentage is actually pretty high. It's been forty-five percent. You know, it's not that low. Donovan Mitchell, another player on the Utah Jazz, he has a pretty low field goal percentage. I think Trey Young might also have a low field goal percentage. Lonzo Ball also has a field low field goal percentage. So maybe Russell Westbrook is better. You know, his career point, three points, the highest career three-point percentage that Russell Westbrook had in his career was 33%. Why is this man shooting the ball? Seriously. It might be worse than Giannis. People talk about Giannis, the three-point shooting not being as good. Man, look at this man, Russell Westbrook. Career high in three-point shooting percentage is 33%. Now, let me look at Giannis. What is, what is Giannis's three, career, career high three-point percentage? And Russell Westbrook's career three-point percentage this season is like 30%, 31%. And people, the media just bash like, or just say Giannis has to work on his jumper. He's got to work on his three-pointer to get better. Well, let's see what his three-point percentage is compared to Russell Westbrook, who receives much less criticism about his three-point shooting. Crying out loud, Giannis has won an NBA championship and Russell Westbrook hasn't. Why would we not be criticizing Russell Westbrook three pointer? The man who hasn't won three pointer over the man who has won not three pointer, who hasn't won an NBA championship over the man who has won a championship and doesn't have like great three point shooting. Okay, why isn't this? Why isn't this app loading? Load, please. Load. Damn. Wow. The NBA is. Lagging in loading Giannis's stats. Lagging. You know, I'm going to look, look, look this up in Google. Giannis. Giannis. Also, I was watching Emily in Paris, which I watched season one, and it was pretty entertaining in my opinion. It's basically, it looks like I haven't watched Sex and the City, but from what I've heard of Sex and the City, it sounds like Sex and the City, but set in Paris. In a more modern version of Sex and the City, because this, this the main lead is like an influencer, which is something that only happened during like recent years and not during the time Saxon City was shot. Giannis Antetokounmpo, career percentage, career uh, three-point percentage, 28, 29%. I'm going to look up Russell West. Well, actually, I'm just going to look up Giannis' three-point percentage this season, this season. I'm assuming it's like 32%. 30, he's shooting 35%. No, no, no. That's Sorry, that's 2013. He shot 35% of the 2013-2014 season. Wow. He's shooting 28% from the three-point. That's like that much worse from Russell Westbrook. He shot 30% the past season. Okay, but he should, he's had a few seasons where he shot like in the mid-20, 20, 20%. So it wasn't great. So maybe Russell Westbrook is a little better. But it's only a few percentage points below the Russell Westbrook. And Giannis just gets a lot more 
flack for being a not so great three point shooter. Now, why not Russell Westbrook? Plus, Giannis doesn't make the same like poor decision that Russell Westbrook makes, but the Russell Westbrook does get um, critiqued for his poor decision making. So maybe that that side of the balance is fair. Anyway, that was the NBA. That was those were my thoughts on the NBA. So hopefully that was uh, somewhat enjoyable. Maybe there's a takeaway there. This, this is kind of fun for me. I can't go in a monologue a little bit and kind of a rant. Anyway, that was fun for me. Thanks for listening. Even though it may have been annoying, maybe there was something valuable. Maybe it was somewhat entertaining. Uh, yeah, that's it. Thanks, guys. Happy holidays. Not Merry Christmas for me, but happy holidays. Hope you rest up. And if you liked this podcast, don't uh, don't forget to subscribe. All right. Bye, folks.